Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Rob Gardner. Rob was raised in Mesa, Arizona. He is a composer of oratorios and works for film, theater, and the concert stage. In 2021, Rob produced a concert film of his oratorio, Lamb of God, that was released in theaters across the United States. Rob has a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University in management and entrepreneurship. He also did graduate studies at the University of Southern California in their Scoring for Motion Picture and Television program. Rob Gardner, welcome to Movable Dough. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I, I'd like to actually start today with the fact that you are the sixth of nine children. And that caught my attention because I'm the sixth of eight children. Oh, nice. <laughs> and after having talked with and observing several sixth children from large families, I have developed what I lovingly call the sixth child syndrome. Oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm excited to hear what this is. Finally well, explain all my neuroses. <laughs> well, that that's sort of where I want to start. I just want to know, as the sixth child, did you often feel the need to prove yourself uh, that you were sort of unique and and different than your older siblings that came before you? Actually, no. I mean, that's, that's probably actually not the case at all. Like we were, <laughs> we were, there was a little bit of a break after the first four. So there's, it's kind of like a little bit of two families where I have okay. siblings that you probably are the same where you, could, you know, I'm growing up. Right. So you get to rediscover them later and, and become friends with them. And I mean, even though I looked up to my older brothers and stuff, I don't think I ever really felt consciously like the need to like distinguish myself from my family members. So that's, I mean, that's interesting. Is that what you usually found with six children? Is I did. Like... We were, we were a little bit closer together. So I was, okay. I was at sort of the tail end of the first six and there were two younger brothers that were a little bit more spaced out. But you've also got a little bit of youngest child <laughs> syndrome there too, then probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so going back to that, what was your family like growing up? Did you have a particularly musical family? No, I mean, everybody is musical in the sense that everybody sang and played an instrument and stuff like that, but no one was really pursuing it. Um, my mom and dad both love music, but it's funny looking back, I don't really remember listening to music much in the home or in the car. And that was probably because it was always so much noise. It was why add to it <laughs> with nine kids. But certainly, I mean, like with church and everything, music was always there. It's just not that I would describe my family as like a musical family that, you know, that, that it would be so obvious that, you know, I would pursue something like that. I didn't, I was just talking to a friend the other day who's a professional musician and we were both saying how just in our families, we actually didn't really have anybody, friends or family that we could look to, to be like, oh, there are careers in music. So the fact that we're doing this is kind of just like random nonsense, but, um, <laughs> but certainly, I mean, like, you know, there was a rule in my family that you had to take an instrument until you were in high school and things like that. So, you know, we were definitely surrounded by music, but it wasn't per se a musical family. Sure. So I, I heard that you played trumpet, uh, which I did as well. Uh, how long How long did you play that? So the rule of my family was you started taking an instrument in fifth grade, which is when I think they started band at our elementary school. So I started then and then you were supposed to play through at the time it was like junior high and high school in Arizona. So it was seventh through ninth grade and then 10th through 12th. So you had to play until you got to 10th grade. So the the so the plan was I was supposed to play trumpet then from fifth grade through ninth, but about eighth grade, I really wasn't good at the trumpet. It was <laughs> like, you know, it taught me to read music a little bit, like looking back, but I was just not good. Like I had, I needed braces at the time. So my like, I played to the side of my mouth because of the uh -huh. way my teeth were or whatever. I don't know. That's my theory now. It just was hard and I didn't like it because I wasn't good at it. I never took my instrument home. So I'm um, in eighth grade. I was in a musical in the uh, Wizard of Oz in eighth grade. And I was the Munchkin Farmer. And at the end of the musical, the choir teacher in very smartly kind of pulled those of us aside that weren't in the choir and was like, hey, have you thought about being in the choir? And I hadn't legitimately thought about it. But suddenly like this spark went off in my head and I'm like, I wonder if I joined the choir, if I could quit band, if my mom would let me, <laughs> like, if that's a, a loophole, right? So I asked her and she got excited when I asked her. So that should have been a sign that like, it was, you know, not being subver as subversive as I thought, but that's kind of where I 
once I started singing is kind of, I think, when I discovered loving music because I was okay at singing and it was more my people, maybe. I don't know. Uh-huh. So um, that's where I kind of started to to grow. And that was in ninth grade. So yeah. So trumpet, my trumpet days, I mean, I when I rep for trumpet now, it's funny because Lamb of God doesn't have trumpets in it and people think that it's some <laughs> hatred of trumpets. It's not <laughs> no trumpets. There just wasn't a place for them in that piece. But but I do recognize how insanely difficult, especially brass instruments are because of that. So that's great. Respect, so. so I did hear in high school, you had a an acapella group, 259. We so, did. So first of all, what does the name 259 mean? It's it's a secret we're all going to take to our graves because it's just <laughs> so ridiculous. We we started off being like no one can know and then it became a thing. And so we're all sworn to secrecy as to what it means. But uh, <laughs> do you also was, remember? <laughs> That's the question. We do actually. It's I mean, it was just a total inside joke between us and it still is. Um, but e- the group itself even was just kind of we we basically got together to do a talent show never expecting to be something beyond that. And they asked us, what's your group name? We're like, we don't have one. Like, we'll make one up. So one of us, because it was already as inside jokes at 259, we all laughed. And then when the group lasted, so did the name. So gotcha. kind of where it all came from. And you were writing and arranging for that group, right? I was, yeah. I was, the, I mean, a couple other guys helped out and sometimes a lot of it was very synergistic and collaborative, but usually it was kind of me guiding, especially like the more, written out or especially like the the religious stuff where it had to be like specifically parts as opposed to the more pop stuff where we had beatbox we right. kind of um, our parts somewhat but yeah i was arranging a lot for that for us was that the the first time you had done that or had you started before i've never thought about that i mean i was dabbling all along through all of it um but like what 259 kind of showed me was what i was talking about earlier where it was like you know we started selling cds and making some money and it was like Oh, you know, in the back of my head, not really conscious, but like, this can be something, this can do something. And, you know, people liked it and we had fans. And so it was like, oh, this is kind of cool, you know? Um, So, so yeah, it kind of taught me a lot of those different things, but I think I was writing and arranging before that. It just kind of was a a growth out of stuff, but it was all so random and so not scripted that um, it's hard to remember like where things kind of started taking off a little bit. Sure. So I know uh, you had the opportunity to serve a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Bordeaux, France. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a former missionary myself, I know the main focus of your time there was not music. Uh, But I'm curious if you had any musical experiences while you were there that you remember and that you could share. Absolutely. I mean, so it's funny you say it's not the main focus because I, in my naivete of the time, by the time I was graduating high school, I was, you know, we had 259. um, I was a pretty decent piano player. So I was asked to accompany people in church every Sunday, maybe two or three times. And it was just becoming like music was taking over my life. And I was looking forward to a mission as like no music and to (laughs) be something kind of like you said, I mean, even though it was with my family, it was almost like once music became my thing, I didn't like that I was being pigeonholed as the music guy. Uh So I was like, you know, I'm good at other things, blah, blah, blah. And just in my stupidity and naivete at the time, I was like, a mission is not for music. It's for missionary work, which I didn't even know what that meant, but I thought it would be an escape. So, um, but pretty quickly, I mean, there's some funny stories about that. I don't need to necessarily go into them, but like the, the leader of the mission, our mission president loved music. And in France, the work was really hard. And he, as a Frenchman himself knew how music could maybe open some doors that way and break down some of the walls that were between us and them. So he got wind from my mother that I wrote music I had sworn to myself I wouldn't do any music on my mission. Like that <laughs> it was going to be secret and that like, I mean, I might sing, but I wasn't going to write anything. And then of course the exact opposite happened. And my mom sent this tape that of all the stuff I wrote to my mission president. And and he called me in after, by the time I got into the mission, he was actually touring these. Um, one of them was The Garden by Michael McLean. And I think it's Bryce Newbert and those. Um, they had translated into French and they were touring around the mission and then there were some copyright issues. And so he was like, I want to keep doing these, but I need to control the copyrights. <laughs> so when he heard that I wrote music. He was like, he asked me to write like an entire hour long cantata about the life of, of Jesus. Oh, wow. I told him, well, sorry, I made this promise. I wouldn't write music on my mission. And he kind of looked at me like, uh, like you don't say no to your <laughs> like I could put you in the corner of the world but no one will find you again so I said okay I'll write this thing as long as I can just write it in my spare time and not like take over my missionary life as that so there was a beat up guitar in the apartment that we were at and I kind of would pluck things out on that 
with ideas. And then when we'd get a chance, we'd go down to the the church building and I'd play it on the piano and figure it out. So it ended up being scored for guitar and piano. And then it was 16 missionaries and we toured around France um, around Christmas time to I think 13 different cities performing this original work of mine, which was like pretty profoundly amazing for that time in my life. And, you know, especially for having said no music on a mission, it ended up being, you know, some of the most profound experiences of, of that time where, you know, as missionaries, often you don't, people won't want to talk to you, especially in France. And now I had like this captive audience every night where we were literally like singing the words I had written and adapted from scripture and stuff like that. And so it was very interesting in that way, but also taught me a lot. Like every time I write a piece, I usually hate it the first time I hear it. And that was true of this, where I like hid, after we did the first performance, I like hid in a room. My mission president came and was like, what's the matter? I'm like, it's terrible. I'm so sorry. It's terrible. He's like, no, it's really good. <laughs> so anyway, it took me a minute, but it was one of the first times that I had taken on, well, certainly the first time that I'd taken on writing such a like full work um, of like, you know, an hour's length of music. So that was kind of what structure I continued forward with sacred music after that, and even some secular things. So yeah. so was this He is Jesus Christ? Is that what that yeah. work was? Yeah. yeah. And then after you came home, you translated it to English and it and continued to perform it, correct? Yeah. So in true fashion with myself, like not communicating with my family while I was on a mission, I didn't tell them anything about this was going on. Oh, <laughs> and we went into a studio and recorded it so that you know people could have it in like the original language and whatever. I wrote it in French. And so I sent for Christmas, I sent the tape to my parents with like this big long letter I'd been keeping track of things with like surprise is what I've been doing for the last six months. Um, and so, and I sent him a translation. So my mom was like, I want to hear this in English. So I, when I got home translated into English and scored it for a bigger orchestra and we started performing it around. So yeah, it kind of, and that, by that time I was at BYU and started doing it with musicians there. And then that spiraled into other works. So, so yeah, it was a little bit of the, um, kind of the, the genesis of a lot of the sacred works that I've done since then. Yeah. And it also led to the formation of Spire music, correct? Your, your yeah, nonprofit. Yeah. So I realized pretty quickly we were doing these shows at BYU with like a full orchestra and choir, and they were all wonderful to volunteer their time, but like, you know, printing programs cost $50 and I didn't have $50 and things like that. And, and you know, I, after that, I wrote one called Joseph the prophet and we wanted to record it. And so I wanted to raise money for that. And so I kind of just, again, naively, whatever, I should get a nonprofit and then people will be able to donate to it. And people were kind and we got some donations. So that's what, yeah, that's what started Spire as well was just like, okay, how do I pay for these things? Because I don't have it in my pocket to do. And so that was how that all started. Yeah. And your music is still published and uh, distributed through Spire, correct? It is. Yeah. It's the main, main outlet that we have for, for putting out, especially the sacred music. Okay. Uh, so you admit to not having a ton of formal music training, uh, have you ever felt a disadvantage uh, or Absolutely. something that you were lacking compared with other composers with more training? For sure. I mean, I, not necessarily. It was funny. The other day I was speaking somewhere and the person before we talked about imposter syndrome and um, and she was like, you know, everybody has it. The only people that don't have imposter syndrome are, are actual imposters. And I was thinking, <laughs> I kind of teased the audience afterwards. I'm like, I've never really had imposter syndrome. So I guess that means I'm an actual fraud. But like, certainly I have I feel like there's a lot that I didn't know at first and I've learned a lot, especially once I got to USC where I was finally surrounded by composers and people who had degrees. And so it really upped my game there, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I guess what I mean by not having imposter syndrome is like, what I know is that if I wrote the thing, I'm the expert on the thing. So whether I know all the reasons why it works or doesn't work from an academic standpoint, I'm still the guy who wrote it. And I think that came from early on also conducting my works and realizing that if you get up in front of any group and portray any weakness, you will be eaten alive. And that's not to say you can't be humble and like teachable, but like when I first conducted, I remember I got in front of the orchestra, I was like, hey guys, this is the first time I've ever done this, so bear with me. And none of them paid attention to me after that because I had just told them not to, right? So it's the same thing with CEOs. You have to project a certain amount of confidence and like I'm in charge here while also still being teachable. And I think that's a really important thing to learn in life. But, you know, especially as a conductor or a composer or a director or any type of leadership in creative things, people need to understand that you're the one with the vision. But that doesn't mean that you have all the answers or it shouldn't be collaborative, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
So, so um, I guess it, in some ways oh, that helped me because it gave me that humility of like, I don't know, what do you think? But also still saying, I can do this. I don't need a degree to do this. But but yeah, I mean, there's definitely moments where I've thought, maybe I should have done music. But then I've had people tell me, well, if you did music, it might have killed the desire to do music <laughs> for you. So I don't know. Who knows? No, I, I love that perspective. You are you are the expert on what you wrote. And I, for I better, need to, for need to embrace that more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was reading online about your cinematic pop project where you transform iconic pop and rock songs into fully orchestrated reimaginings. So where did this idea start and where is it going? So that's a good question. Like most things, it kind of was just super random. So I, in 2013, 2012, um, was able to work with Amazon Studios when they were just starting out and they had optioned a film that I'd written, a film musical. And the idea for the film musical was to have it be pop music that was orchestrated like a film. And so that was exciting and we worked on it for three years. And then because this is how most movies go, it died in development. And so right near the end of that, a couple of buddies of mine from 259 actually were like, hey, wouldn't it be cool to like do these like pop iconic songs in like your Rob Gardner, like filmish style. And since we had just done this project where that was the idea, it was all original music for this project. But like, I thought, well, I'm free right now and it could be fun. And so in true fashion with me, it was like, we had this idea in like March and we scheduled the recording session for June. Um, and we just kind of grabbed a bunch of songs and tried it out and found new soloists. And, and we decided to do it on YouTube because we thought, well, if we, cause the, the thought for me was, this is either going to be the worst idea ever and be really cheesy or it could be really fun. And so we decided to do it for YouTube because then if it was really cheesy and bad, we could just take it down and no one would ever know. <laughs> but if we did it live, we'd be in front of an audience when we collapse and be embarrassed. So we just did that. We took two days and recorded everything live on a stage in, in Mesa and then put out the videos and the videos kind of took off and then a lot of different things happened. And so it's still kind of just the one, even though it's built a lot of fans and we do concerts and there's recordings, it's kind of the project I go to when I don't have anything else going on uh -huh. uh, because it's, it's fun and it flexes my orchestrational muscles, but sure. it's not most of it's not original music. So it doesn't totally make sense from a business standpoint to like dedicate my life to giving other people money. Um, so, and it's always tough with songs like that because there's so many different rights you have to get and things like that. So oh, yeah. there's always the potential. And like with most of the projects I work on, they're all kind of in the middle phases where like they, they could blow up if someone would pay attention, but I'm always running off to the next thing. So <laughs> working on that, but, uh, but yeah, so so the answer is, I don't know where it's going. We've talked with some companies about touring, you know, even internationally, but definitely nationally and doing things like that. But in the meantime, you know, that's not something I have bandwidth to organize. So looking sure. for partners is what we're always doing is looking for partners who like already have a foot in that world who can make it happen. So yeah. do you have a, a favorite from the, from the series? Usually the most recent one that I <laughs> arranged, okay. I get bored of things pretty quickly, but um, I, so not necessarily, it's fun. You like go back to ones you haven't listened to in years. You're like, oh, that's actually pretty good. Um, so I think all of them, I wouldn't have done them if I, you know, wasn't loving it. That's kind of the test yeah. for it is people are always like, why don't you do this song? And if I don't have an idea that I love, then I just go, let's find another song. So, so for the most part, all of them, at least at one point I really was into. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. So you mentioned being busy and bouncing from project to project. Uh, our, our listeners may not know exactly how incredibly busy you are. Um, there is one project, though, that I saw on your website and intrigued me. And I hope you can shed more light on this. It's a little album called Truck Tunes. <laughs> <laughs> what was this all about? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the thing that will be on my headstone, probably. So, <laughs> Like I said earlier, so my oldest brother, um, who I didn't really know growing up, he was actually the one when I just got back from my mission, he was the one he had been successful and um, wanted to support me. And so he was the one who recorded the or paid for the recording of that first He is Jesus Christ album. Okay. Um, really generously. And just because he believed in me. And, and um, so we became really good friends and kind of discovered each other, you know, not having grown up necessarily together. Um, and he came to me when I was in college and he had just had twins, a boy and a girl. And the boy, he was about two years old at the time, loved trucks. 
and he couldn't find any DVDs that he liked. They were all too cheesy, whatever. So just like me or any other gardener in my family, it's like, well, I'll just make them myself, even though that's not what he necessarily did. So he went out and made a video about trucks and he asked me to write the theme song. So I did, thinking that was the end of it. But he, unlike me, is really pursues things and kept on it. A couple of years later, he came back to me after I just finished Blackbeard, a uh, musical about Blackbeard. And he said, I think this would be better and like more received if better received if it had like more music. So I want to do like 10 songs about 10 trucks. And I was like, dude, I just wrote a whole musical. I don't really like have the time for this and for like toddler music. But he, but like, you know, he's my brother and he's been so supportive. So I said, well, if you write the lyrics, I'll write the music. Because if I have lyrics, it's a lot easier to just work out a melody, sure. especially for stuff like this. So they're totally like funny pastiche pop songs about these trucks. So we did that. 10 songs for 10 trucks. And I walk away and do my next project. In the meantime, he's pushing it and puts them on YouTube. And suddenly one day out of nowhere, we still don't know why one of the videos like skyrocketed. So we started doing some real traction on YouTube. So that made him want to do more songs. And so now here we are many years later, I think we've done 65 songs now. It was called oh my gosh. We've gone way past that. We just did release the, releasing the most recent one in a couple of weeks. But for me, it was like, in fact, still, even though now I have a lot more resources, I started doing these songs in Logic with no live instruments in my closet. I still do it. Like I still just, that's the idea is like, don't try to fancy this up. Just lo-fi ghetto style. I sing all of them in my bedroom with a mic and that's awesome. fake instruments. So it's fun. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's funny because like no matter what I do, these things seem to find me. And, um, you know, I never really put my name on truck tunes because I was like, this isn't what I want to be known for, but it's grown so big that like most likely at any point of the day, that's what most likely people are in the world are listening to of anything I've done. And it's most likely two-year-olds, but, um, <laughs> and then we get emails and it's awesome. Like you think it's just, it's just trucks, you know, and I do it just, it's just fun, but we'll get emails from parents about kids who like have, who are on the spectrum or whatever, and are nonverbal and their first words that they were said were excavator or whatever. And so we still get these emails of like how these ridiculous over the top truck songs have even changed people's lives. And it's just a reminder to me of like, it doesn't matter really the subject matter all the time. Music is such a powerful tool to just bring people joy or whatever they need to feel. And so even these toddlers, you know, the first they wake up and the first thing out of their mouth is dump truck, you know, or whatever. And yeah. so, um, Hopefully people don't go and search all this stuff now, but, but, <laughs> but yeah, so it's all over the place. This is why, in fact, I've been trying to get an agent lately and it's just like, I'm so across the board that it's just like, yeah, I do musicals and films and sacred stuff. Oh, and there's also these truck things and we have almost a billion views on YouTube now. So that's always where their ears perk up. Like, wait, what? This thing that has a billion views? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's talk about the musicals. Or <laughs> Anyway, it's it's great. And it, you know, my brother has been amazing and it's fun to work with him on it. So it's it's cool, but it's definitely not even now like where I want, you know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life writing songs for right. hey, why not in the meantime? So yeah. Well, since you are so busy with all the different projects, what do you do when you're not involved in one of the projects? What do you do for fun? Do you have hobbies or things that you just I mean, like to relax with? Unlike what I've learned, unlike many of my um, comrades in composition, I am super, super social. And so I, I really enjoyed being around people. So com so composing is kind of like what I do in order to be with an orchestra or be with a choir because the like aloneness of it is not my favorite part. So I spend a lot of time with friends, uh, love being outside as much as possible, um, traveling as much as possible. But I mean, I get to do for a living what I also love doing. So music is just a part of both the fun that I do. You know, my friends will come over and we jam or whatever. And some days I'm like, I can't, no more music today. But, um, you know, it's just a lot of my friends do it as well. So it's part of my my fun as well. But I do just love to be outside and travel and with people as much as possible. That's great. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll listen to some of Rob's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Rob Gardner. So we're going to start today with My Kindness Shall Not Depart From Thee from Joseph Smith the Prophet. So for anyone who looks through your catalog, it will not be hard to see that much of your work is sacred, including this piece. 
So I'd like you to talk for a minute about how your faith informs your compositions. Um, I mean, obviously it's a huge part of it and it's been a big part of my life. So it's hard to like divorce anything from that, but you know, I'll be, I'll be totally honest. And I don't, I don't approach it any differently than anything else. What I love most about music about being part of music is telling stories. And so that's even where my sacred music is concerned. If I find myself writing a song, it's going to end up in a story somehow. I'm going to tell a story through a concert or an oratory or whatever you want to call those or a, a show. Um, and so to me, there's just an added layer of, I don't know, of depth when you do sacred music, when you're telling a story. So, but, but still, again, it's just about telling a story. So I don't approach sacred music in a way of like trying to convert people to the way, a way of thinking because who even knows what I'm thinking in any given moment. But, um, but I do want to just move people and tell a story. And that's, I mean, it's a powerful medium to do it with. So Sure. So could you tell us about the story of Joseph Smith, the prophet, and how my kindness shall not depart from thee fits into the the whole scheme? Yeah, so it's always fuzzy with the timeline. But um, so that song in particular, um, my my mom was always a big part of this early stuff. But my younger brother was leading on his mission. Um, and as part of the church meeting um, for like his his talk before he left on his mission, they would usually include music. So my mom asked me to write a song for my brothers going on a mission. And she also found these scriptures in Isaiah that that are referenced in that song, My Kindness Shall Depart From Thee. And I read it and I was like, wow, this is a really cool scripture. And I'd never heard it before. And it did feel musical. So I wrote that song independently first. But again, always thinking like, oh, could this whatever. And at some point within a short time after writing that song, I had the idea to write to tell the story of Joseph Smith through this oratorio-like structure. And so it was pretty obvious that that, where for me, where that song could go in there. What's interesting is I wrote it as a solo because I was the one who sang it at the church meeting. And it's not in, like inherently choral, but I knew that in the show I needed it to be choral for the moment. So I had to figure out how to do that. And so it's that's a lot of kind of where things go is it's like, okay, it started here, but because of the story I wanted to tell, it became this. Um, so that's kind of where that one, the genesis of where that song came from. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I haven't seen the whole production. Um, where where in Joseph Smith's life does this fit in? So he was put into prison several times. Um, this one in particular, he was put into prison in Liberty, Missouri. Okay. Um, and it was a pretty rough situation. Um, and so there's a moment where he says, you know, he cries out and says, oh, oh God, you know, where is the pavilion that hide it? Basically, why is thou forsaken me? Kind right. Of situation. And the re there's a response in the scriptures um, in his in his account of, of what happened. And this felt very much like what the response was, is like, for a little while, I've hid my face from thee, but with everlasting kindness, I will, you know, I'll gather thee and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. This response and, and what I respond to a lot in music, especially in sacred music, is not a like super overly rosy picture. But I, I what I kind of joke is almost all my sacred music is a variation on a theme of this is tough, but but it's going to be OK. And not trying to be too like. Nothing bad is happening and joy is in, you know, there's that, too, and there's a place for that. But I find myself coming back and back and back to this theme of, you know, of hope of, and hope usually exists in darkness or, or is strongest, I think in darkness. Yeah. And so finding that way of acknowledging the struggles that we're going through while also saying things are going to be okay. Who knows yeah. how they're going to be okay. So that's basically what that, that song was. Um, so yeah, it fit into that moment where he was in this dark place and hopefully it's kind of this shining thing that comes through and then he was released after that. So that's where it is in the story. That's awesome. So uh, my my chorus and orchestra that I work with, uh, we're actually performing this piece uh, this coming Friday. So oh, awesome. very excited about it. Uh, so we're going to now listen to My Kindness Shall Not Depart From Thee.
All right. Our second piece today is Your Brother by Your Side from The Price of Freedom. So this musical is based on actual letters written during World War II. And I'd love you to talk to us about the process of creating this musical. Yeah. So I got really fascinated with World War II um, during while well, I, uh, I was at college. And um, I actually, while I was at BYU, even though I was a business major at the time, I was doing a lot of music and I took a class in um orchestration that they let me audit and everything and I came across these two filmmakers who had made this um, documentary called Brides on the Homefront I think was the title and that was the premise of this is that they had three women who had sent off either boyfriends or husbands to the war and like interviewing them about that experience so it was the, the homefront side of the war and I wrote the score to it and recorded it and everything and I was I thought it was a really cool idea and in the meantime with one of my, the guys from 259, McCain Davis, who's also my collaborator with Cinematic Pop, um, we had this idea to do kind of a oratorio-like secular work about this idea. So we went and researched a ton of letters and found all these really great letters and wanted to tell the story from both sides. So you get to hear from mm. the people at war and also their families and how it... So it wasn't so much about the war as it was about people. And that's kind of what I do a lot is like, what's the backdrop from which you can tell these personal stories? 
And so, so yeah, brother by your side was, um, I can't remember at this point, but that was one. So McCain wrote most of the lyrics for that one. And then I think we also kind of even worked on the music together. And then I kind of went off on my own and, 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 and did my thing with it. And it's near the end of the show. And, you know, because of what it is in war, it's a really hard musical because obviously not all of them make it through and that's true to the letters and the people that wrote them but there was one story about a guy who was writing to the parents of his comrade in arms who had given his life for to save this guy Mm. and was feeling the grief of that and also the guilt of that and coming home and telling his friend's parents how their son died and they yeah. he died saving them. And we came across this idea, you know, that's not new to us of that. These guys don't necessarily fight for freedom. They don't fight for whatever. They're basically fighting to save the life of the guy next to them, next to them. Cause that's, what's immediate. Right. Right. Sure. They have these ideals of freedom and country and God and all these things. But in the moment, what they're doing is trying to save the life of their buddy that's next to them. And I was like, that really resonated with me. Um, and so that's where this song came from. And it's near the, it's kind of the 11th hour song of the, of the musical where there's been a lot of hard things I go through and you yeah. get to kind of have this anthem of this guy saying, you know what, when it came down to it, it's all about relationships, which is what the show is about too, which is not war is good or war is bad or whatever. <laughs> it's like war is war. And we did this not for the sake of these things, these ideals necessarily in the moment, but because we loved someone. That's fantastic. Well, it's a great piece. All right. We are now going to listen to your brother by your side from the price of freedom. Flash, Washington, INS, the war is over. We repeat, Washington, the war is over according to INS. There it is, right on the nose, that great news you've been waiting for. And if there isn't a tear in your eye, there isn't everyone's here in this newsroom. In New York City, as throughout a rejoicing nation and world, vast throngs of grateful, happy people celebrate the end of fighting, the dawn of peace. Two million New Yorkers jammed Times Square. It's official. It's all over. It's total victory. As I sit and write this letter, I realize that there are no words that can do justice or calm the heart. Still, I feel that you deserve to know the circumstances of your son Stephen's death. To know how he gave his life to save mine. Stephen and I were attached to each other like no other people could ever be, and I loved him like a brother. It all happened at Iwo Jima. At dusk, we were ordered to advance several hundred yards into the jungle and dig in at the edge of a lagoon. All was quiet until about nine o'clock. Then we could hear the Japs cautiously advancing. And then suddenly, all hell broke loose. The jungle was lit up like a stage and battle cries broke out from both sides. We were outnumbered five to one and were soon hand to hand. After about five minutes, I was hit. And fell to the ground. Stephen stood over me and fought like a madman. And when I told him to leave me, all he said was, Go to hell, Shep. Things began to quiet down and reorganization began. Stephen worked over me for about an hour, trying to stop the blood flow, tearing his shirt into strips for bandages. With his assistance, I could walk a bit, and as we made our way down a trail through the jungle, we ran head-on into a Jap patrol, and Stephen, instead of getting away, chose to die fighting to save my life. He dropped me to the ground, and he stood there with a knife in his hand as three Japs charged him with bayonets. He killed the first two, but the third one... The third one stabbed him in the back with a bayonet. He fell, and the Jap ran. And then he looked at me and he said, Well, Shep, I guess this is where we came in. 
And then he smiled. And he started trying to hum his favorite tune. I'm getting tired so I can sleep. And then he just went to sleep. I put my hand on his heart and began to crawl toward the chap lines. And by some miracle, I reached the hill safely. I can't explain this feeling to know that I'm alive because Stephen is dead. To know that he stood over me and fought, died, saving my life when he could have run. The weight of his death is overwhelming. And I'd give my life a thousand times over to bring him back. We have traveled through the valley of the shadow. Walked its pathway side by side I've watched my friends and brothers fall before my eyes And heard their final cries All the talk of flags and freedom and the glory and the pride They go fading into black Fear swells up inside your swollen heart With the weight of heroes on your back Then you realize why you're standing In the battle's rising tide The only reason you're not running from it all to save your brother by your side Marched on through the valley of the shadow of the night Here I watched my best friend fall He fought to save my life and lost his in return I'm left to make sense of it all Oh, we talk of freedom ringing And we raise our fists held high But when you're staring down the barrel at the flash before your eyes Well then suddenly you realize why you're waiting In the battle's rising tide The only reason you're not running from it all Is to fight to save your brother by your Our third piece today, Stay With Me, from your musical Blackbeard. So this is a fully acted play. So how did you conceive to write about the infamous pirate Blackbeard? I was watching the History Channel one day, actually, and they oh, yeah? did a 15-minute segment on him. I'm like, why have I never heard this story before? <laughs> it's like this perfect, like, you know, as a composer and more as a writer, I guess I'm always looking for stories like that, where it's like interesting people and high drama and you know over the top and man like no one's more over the top than blackbeard so i you know once i saw that documentary i started just a deep dive into him and i remember i, I almost went i was at byu at the time and i had no piano at home so i like if, if memory serves i went almost immediately after i had i watched that documentary to like the practice rooms and started just playing ideas because it just brought this flood of 
piratey music in my head. And so I wrote down some ideas and then it went from there. Um, so yeah, that's where the idea came from. And, and then I had, I had started this relationship with a community theater in Mesa, Mesa Community College. Um, and they had done one of my original musicals for their summer musical a couple of years before this. So I went to them and said, Hey, if I were to write this show about Blackbeard, would you, you know, would you produce it there? And they said, yes. So kind of, I always need a reason to write. It's not enough just to write. I need to know I have an audience coming up yeah. and I need a true deadline, not one that I made up. So having them say, yeah, we'll do it this summer made me go, okay, I have to have a show done by this summer. So we did it there. Um, and then a couple of years later, I revamped it and, and uh, we did it. I, I produced it myself at a um, theater in Phoenix and we did that for four weeks there. So um, that was where that one came from. So how much of the story of Blackbeard are you telling? Is it so just months kind of, or years or? No, we actually just told, um, I kind of condensed some of the, the events, but it was basically kind of like the last week. Okay. So we did this really um, harebrained, but also just gigantic effort. And he blockaded an entire harbor in Charleston, South Carolina, because he just had such a presence at this time. Um, and so I started with that basically. And then even though there was like three months of that before he died, I just put all the events because he took hostages and everything I'm like that is such high drama. So, so yeah, it's not, for me, it's tougher to tell the story of someone's life than to go, here's a day in the life of, or here's a week right. or here's, you know, and I've done both, but it's, it's just easier. I think with any story to start in the middle of it. Sure. And so where does stay with me fit into it? So stay with me is, you know, no one really knows all the, all this, what really happened, but this is what's great about these stories that are like a little bit nebulous because you can go, well, no one knows, but he had, you know, notoriously had tons of wives or just women all around. And I thought there was probably someone that he truly loved. And there was a, in history, a woman named Mary Ormond, who was of a high family who is rumored to have been with him or one of his wives. So I put her in as kind of this foil to him, but also that they, that the idea that he actually did really love her, but he was like more stuck on this idea of being a legend. And so she was trying to convince him not to go back out, but to stay with her. And so that's where the song gotcha. from, her impassioned plea to like, don't just give up on this and take this pardon from the king and just live a life with me. And that's not how people like Blackbeard think. It's not All the right. way I think. So. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to listen to Stay With Me from Blackbeard. All my friends gone away for the summer But we'd stay to take advantage of the emptiness they'd leave And the sunlight in the day seemed to mock me As it played among the clouds there in the sky But at night I was glad For the world seemed just as lonely and as sad as I so I dreamed of the day when a man would come my way and take me off with him. And no matter what, we'd stay not a moment's breath away from where the other is, as long as we should live. Now though I've found such a man, here I am alone again, just like the summers of my youth. But in my dreams you want a life of playing husband to my wife, and so I beg of you, beg of you, please stay. Stay with me and tell me you're so happy that your lips are weak because you can't stop smiling. You think of me And how I'll be forever yours Stay with me And whisper in the morning That you couldn't sleep For fear the dream would end And that you'd wake Without 
are something I can't give, then I'll go with you to find and bring it home. Oh, but darling, you must know that without you I can't live. You must not ever leave me here, abandoned and alone. But Today we are going to end with Some Time We'll Understand from Lamb of God. So this is arguably your most popular oratorio. Personally, I've been in five productions of it in the past six years. Uh, this oratorio tells the passion story in a unique way, I think. No one plays the character of Jesus Christ. Instead, the focus is on the disciples and their reactions. So what do you hope people come away with after experiencing Lamb of God? Hope. I mean, I could I could elaborate, but that's really all that it is, is is um and and again, you know, I don't want to dismiss it or whatever, but just I've done I've worked with so many people of so many different faiths and of no faith to just say that even with that story, which is so profoundly important to believers, to me, it can also resonate and does also resonate with people who don't necessarily have faith, but to say, here's a an amazing story about hope. Um, and so that's what I really just, that was all I wanted to do in that telling that story. Cause I know, you know, because it's the last week of Jesus life, it's dark, it's hard. And especially, I mean, if you're telling it from Jesus standpoint, it's hard too, but from the standpoint of those around him who didn't understand what was going on and were being asked to be part of this in some way and absolutely devastating and really hard and really dark and really awful. And I wanted to make sure that I did justice to that darkness and that awfulness but that there was never a moment that was just dark. There was always some glimmer of hope shining through, through music or through something, through some character or some idea. And so that's, I mean, even why the central piece of it is called Here is Hope. I wanted at the darkest moment for one of the characters to stand up and without equivocation say, even right now, not, you know, because that one takes place even before the resurrection. So before they know the quote unquote happy ending of it, I wanted someone to say in that dark moment, because we all kind of live, we're all in the middle of it, right? We don't know how things are going to work out. And so it's great to see stories where everything works out. But like, what about when we're in the middle of it? What about before the resurrection? So I want to make sure there was a piece there that said very openly, even in this moment, or maybe especially in this moment, there, not there is hope, here is hope in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I particularly enjoy is just the, the humanity of the disciples that are are following and not understanding and just their reactions to to what is happening it it, it helps me connect with them on such a personal level that yeah. i don't necessarily get from reading but i'm i'm getting it a lot from from this production well that makes me happy cuz i mean that's honestly one of the funnest parts about writing and this is why i like telling stories to music and a lot of the, almost everything I've done has been, you know, historical in some sense. And I have just loved diving into the psyche of people and trying to understand them, especially people like Blackbeard or like even in this one, Peter, if you look at the main people, Peter, Thomas and Martha are often maligned by people for the mistakes they made, right? Peter for denying that he knew Christ, 
Thomas for doubting in a moment, Martha for being busy in the kitchen, you know, and it's like, these things are such, I don't even think that they're sins or even mistakes, <laughs> but I mean, we could argue that all day, but point being a, a lot of the people, a lot of people point to them and say, don't be like them. And I wanted to understand them better. And I come out of there saying, absolutely be like these people. And they became the centerpiece because we really relate to people who have moments of perceived weakness or real weakness. Um, but like trying to understand them and what was going through their minds, these moments, because again, they didn't know the end of the story when they were in the middle of it. Um, and that's where, you know, the song Sometime Will Understand comes into play. I had written that one previous to starting writing Lamb of God, which actually mm. a few of them in there that way. And um, it's an old hymn text that I came across that I was like, why have I not heard this? It's an amazing text. It had a few archaic things in it that I just finessed a bit words wise. But, and I wrote that melody and it was around the time that I had an aunt who died of breast cancer and it just really spoke to me and I didn't know where to put it. Like I had written the song and I didn't have a story to put it in. And so as I was writing Lamb of God, I kept coming back to it. And I was like, this is the perfect sentiment for Thomas because he's the only one who gets to sing after the miracle that he gets. And I didn't want him to stand up there and preach to the audience because none of us like that. So I was like, what epiphany would Thomas be having in this moment? And I kept coming back to this song of like, sometime we'll understand. Because I think Thomas, even though he had this gift of seeing Christ after not getting to see him the first time, was still like, we don't let go of hurt that quickly, right? Like we might feel like, oh, it's better. But we it's like waking up from a nightmare where it's like, why am I still anxious? Yeah. Even though I know that wasn't a real thing. But the problem was I didn't feel like stylistically that song fit into what I was writing for Lamb of God. But but like emotion of it and like what it was saying fit perfectly for this. And I finally just said, you know what? Give into it and orchestrate it in a way that makes it feel like it's part of this. And I don't know if it was successful or not, except that it's definitely been successful for me and for many others in feeling the right thing at the end of this show, where it's like, it again kind of sums up what all these characters have been going through with like a little bit of a shrug of the shoulders and going we don't know like <laughs> but just keep going just keep moving and it's such a simple sentiment but such a powerful one and especially coming from a character who just felt deep hurt and still may not understand you know and, and if you look you know what these guys went through after the story finishes of all the terrible stuff that they went through Hopefully to me, it's like a beacon for him and for the others yeah. to be like, I don't know why this is happening, but keep going. So, yeah, I love this song because it's not only Thomas. I feel like Thomas becomes the audience at that point and speaks for everyone that we don't always understand. And that. yeah. Okay. Well, it's we are going to at the end. It's a non-answer. Right? <laughs> it's right. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to listen to Thomas sing. Sometime we'll understand from Lamb of God. Not now, but in the coming years. It may not be when we demand. We'll read the meaning of our tears. And there, sometime we'll understand. Why we long for most of all eludes our open pleading hand why ever silence meets our call somewhere sometime we'll understand so trust in God through all thy Fill their graven 
Sometime with tearless eyes we'll see What here we could not understand So trust in God through all thy days Fear not, for he doth hold thy hand Though dark thy still sing and praise Sometime, sometime we'll understand Though dark thy way Still sing and praise Sometime All right. Well, Rob, with all the projects that you're involved in, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? So this very minute, um, there's a theater in Utah called the Hale Theater in in Salt Lake and Sandy that is a very large, I think the largest by subscription base in the country, um, regional theater. And they're doing a play, a straight play of Around the World in 80 Days that demands a lot of music. And so they they asked me and brought me on to do a score for this play, which I've oh. never done a score for a straight play before. And it's, it sounds like a fun project and it's kind of kicking my butt a little bit. <laughs> a lot of music and a lot of logistics of just, they're going to talk at a different speed every time. So how do we, you know, work that? And so, but it's fun. It has a lot of just, I've always wanted to write a ballet because I think it's an interesting challenge to write something without words and still tell a story. And mm-hmm. this, this play is kind of written where there's a lot of sequences that are just, acted out without any dialogue so it's a little bit of like a dipping my toes into the world of of movement without having to sing you know so it's it's fun but it's definitely you know definitely it's it's a great flex of like the composition muscles but because the play is like they haven't even gone to rehearsals yet it's a lot of it is we'll just create whatever to what you write and i'm like well so it's like (laughs) what are you gonna put on the stage well what do you want to put the music so it's really cool that i get to use my imagination and do that but it's also then like oh we love this piece but can we have 10 more seconds to move the set you know so then it's like well it's already a piece of music i can't just plop 10 seconds in the middle of it so it's a fun challenge that way but yeah that will be opening in september okay we're hopefully getting it done the next month or so and off to record it and then we're also doing um i did a Mesa Easter pageant, long story, but basically took Lamb of God and developed pieces of it because the Mesa Easter pageant tells the whole story of Christ. So we took some stuff from Lamb of God and I wrote new stuff and put together this new pageant that's an hour long that tells the full life of Christ instead of just the week. And we've never done that live. So in October at the Tabernacle in Salt Lake, we're going to be doing some version of what I'm jokingly calling Lamb of God Plus. (laughs) <laughs> which will be the pageant and Lamb of God in one big two-act structure that'll tell the full story of Christ. And so as soon as I get a minute, I need to come back to that and and work that out. But it'll, it'll be fun. We'll have a huge, I think, 30 soloists, oh, huge orchestra, wow. huge choir. So it'll be, it'll be really fun. So those two things in the fall for people to check out if they want to see some live stuff. Well, if you're looking for a Peter for, uh, yeah, just give me a call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where can my listeners learn more about you? What's your website, social media, that sort of stuff? Uh, well, if they try to find something about me on social media, they're going to be disappointed because I'm terrible at it. <laughs> I do have a website, robgardnermusic.com, but it's, I don't think I've updated in a while either. So, um, but yeah, or spiremusic.org um, is, is where we make a lot of announcements. So if they get on one okay. of those email lists, they're likely to know when the big stuff happens, but yeah, not great about, I'm great about communicating in person, just <laughs> uh, when I'm with someone in person, but over media, not great. So. All right. <laughs> well, hey, listeners out there, if you are one of my faithful listeners, I'd like to invite you to become a supporting member of Movable Dough. 
For less than a dollar a month, you can help me keep the music moving and continue sharing this amazing music from all these amazing composers. Visit sdcompose.com slash dough for more information about how to become a supporter of this podcast. Well, Rob, it has been a lot of fun today. I could talk to you all day. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. It was fun for me too, thanks. My guest today was composer Rob Gardner. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Starry night.